Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. One Broken Cog Podcast back again for another great episode. You know, they say winners hate to lose more than they love to win. And I'll tell you, today's episode, my special guest and I will be talking about mistakes businesses make and how to avoid them and overcome them so they can enjoy the sweet taste of victory instead of the sour taste of defeat. And my guest today knows what it's like to win, as he's done it on a consistent basis, but he's not afraid to make mistakes and step out of his comfort zone. He's a certified financial planner, a certified financial transitionist, a chartered financial consultant, a chartered life underwriter, a serial entrepreneur, a writer, reader, and thinker, who I'm referring to is none other than Mr. Josh Patrick. Now, some background on Josh. He's a contributor to the New York Times' You're the Boss blog, as well as the author of his Stage 2 blog, Creating Value. He's written for American Express Open as well as Inc.com and the Huffington Post. He now has a beat with Forbes.com where he writes about succession issues for private business owners. He also has a podcast called The Sustainable Business where he talks with thought leaders who will help you think about your business or your client's business 20, 30 or more years into the future. He's run an operating company for over 20 years, grown up in a family business, sold the family business and successfully transitioned into several new businesses. Now, he started reading a book a week in college. And he's continued doing so since 1972. Wow, I'm very impressed by that. And over the past 35 years, he's worked with and coached hundreds of businesses. Josh, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to the One Broken Cock Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Now, I got to tell you, Josh, you must have a massive book collection. And I'm, I'm curious how you find a specific book you're looking for, the collection that large. Well, actually, I read books on a Kindle about 95% of the time, so... Um, I used to have thousands of books in my house. I gave most of them away, but now I've got like 600, 700 books on the Kindle. Nice. Any favorites, any recommendations as of late? Um, well, it depends what you want a, a recommendation for. I think the, the basic business book everybody should read is Traction by Gino Wickman. That's where I would start. And why should and we read that one? Excuse me? And why, why would we uh, start with that one? Um, I think it's a great operating system for how to run a business. You know, you know you're probably not going to use it if you have one employee. But in my experience, most people who own privately held businesses are not especially detail-oriented, and they need to have a system that's simple and easy to use. And traction is absolutely that. I think that Gino Wickman did a great job designing that. Awesome. No, that's great. I'll check it out for sure. Now, you know, we want to talk about a little bit about mistakes you don't want to make as a business. Now, I know that you are a big proponent for having a mistake-friendly company, and it's very important. Why do you think that is? Well, you don't learn by doing it right. You learn when you make a mistake. And whether you admit it or not, or you want it or not, you're going to make mistakes. And when you make a mistake, you have two, two choices. One is you can pretend the mistake's not your fault and you don't learn anything. Or the second is you can say, gee, how, what, what did I learn and how can I do it differently next time? And if you don't do that, you're going to be stuck pretty quickly and you're going to spend your life blaming other people in your company or justifying your way through life. And you'll do a great job of losing customers, but you're not going to do a great job of making your business any better. Yeah, that's a great point. How many of the businesses that you've run across or some of your clients how good are they at actually adapting to that and learning from mistakes? Is that an issue for them? Or are they easily able to learn and adapt? You know, what do you it think? Depends, it depends on the person. I mean, people who hire me, 
if they aren't willing to be learning from their mistakes, they're going to be pretty unhappy with me quickly and they're going to probably fire me pretty fast. So the people <laughs> I work with, uh, I mean, one of my rules, if you're going to work with me is you have to become coachable. And if you're coachable, that means you learn from your mistakes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a great point. It's, it's funny because when you get into business coaching, you realize pretty quickly that a lot of these businesses, they have their inner circle and they have a lot of yes men surrounding them and people really don't understand what the problem is or the root of it or why, why it's the way it is. And one of the advantages to having a coach is being able to give that unfiltered feedback, you know, whether they want to hear it or not. And, you know, that you know that uh, you're going to be giving an honest assessment. Sometimes they're not hearing that. For you, what's your experience been like with that? Have people been resistant? Have they, has it been an aha moment for them? What do you think? It's all over the place. It depends on the uh, particular issue and the person. You know, some people are more inclined to accept uh, constructive comments and some people aren't. Some people will push back every time I recommend something, think about it for four or five weeks or four or five months, and then come back to me and say, hey, I just had this great idea. And if you're going to be in the business consulting, coaching, mentoring, thinking partner world, you have to be aware that with many entrepreneurs, any private business owners, they want to be in control. So you have to let them do so, which means you have to let them own the ideas even if it is your idea. It's just part of the game. Yeah, it really is. And of course, they want to take credit for everything, which is interesting. I know sometimes it comes down to trust, right? And how you gain that initial trust from somebody. What do you think? I know you talk about the building blocks of trust in any type of relationship, whether it's business or otherwise. What are those building blocks? Well, there's a, a, there's a book by Charles Green, and I never can remember his uh, writing partner, called The Trusted Advisor. And in the trusted advisor, there's a formula called the trust formula, which is uh, intimacy, which means how much you care about me, reliability, which means do you do what you say you do, and competence means that you're good at what you do divided by self-interest. And if you're doing all four of those things, you're going to have high trust with the person you're working with. When you find trust falling out, you'll likely find that the reason trust is falling out is one of those four things is out of whack. So, for example, if I uh, say I'm going to call you at 4 o'clock today and I call you at 4 o'clock three days from now, I, you're going to have lost some trust because your reliability has just gone down. If you say you know how to do something and you get in there and do it, for example, I've hired a bunch of marketing people in my life and they all talk a good game, but when it comes time to actually perform or what they were doing, they were not especially competent, and as a result, they lost my trust, and I would end up firing them. Wow. How many chances did you give them before they, uh, before they got the boot? Well, it's not chances. It's, I look at results. You know, they, That's what they, I mean. They were, they were if, saying, I was going to get this particular result, and i get into month three, four, or five, and nothing was happening or they hadn't even started on the work they were supposed to do, which again goes to reliability. Um, and then, uh, you know, eventually you finally say, this is not working. I might as well stop throwing good money after bad. And you discontinue working with somebody. Yeah, it could be with marketing, especially there's a lot of trial and error. Do you ever have your own in-house marketing person or do you hire firms from outside? Uh, I am my in-house marketing person. And yes, I do hire firms from the outside. 
Oh, nice. Okay, great. So it's kind of a relationship there between you, who you're the head of marketing for your own brand, and then an outside marketing firm. It does take a minute to find the right brand. Trust me, I've been through a few of them myself. And they come, they're very few and far between, let me tell you that. And now, you know, you talk about the difference between sales and marketing. Um, how do you define that? What do you think the main difference is from your perspective? Well, this is really simple. Marketing creates awareness and sales creates customers. So marketing usually leads sales because someone has to become aware of you before you get to sell. So, uh, and, and they're very different skill sets. I mean, marketing, what you do to create awareness is different than what you actually go do to create a customer. Do you think they go hand in hand? Meaning, can you be an elite level salesperson uh, without the marketing piece in, in an organization? Well, you can, but it becomes brute force sales. Um, the, they, they, they go hand in hand, but it's rare that you can find someone who's good at both. It's a yeah. different skills. It's a different skill set. So, right. if someone says, "I do sales and marketing," I usually will. Um, start looking at what they actually spend their time doing. And they're either good at sales or they're good at marketing, but rarely are they good at both. My, what I mean is in the organization itself, you have like, a, let's say a sales department and a marketing department. Uh, yes. House, you know, hopefully aligning themselves together. If you have a very lean marketing department in your estimation, can sales still function at a high level? So oh, you'll sure. have exclusive sales oh, sure. people. Okay. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Look, a sales is, I can have one person working to create awareness about my company, and I might have 25 salespeople out there doing it. No, absolutely, absolutely. You know, they've recently talked about, there's a, a big trend in hiring where, I forget the term for it, it's, it's brand new, but it's basically you have a core competency as in sales, but you have, a, you know, other skills along with it. That's attractive to people, you know, because these startup tech firms, they look for People that are nimble, they can, you know, they're versatile, they can do many different things. Um, any take on that as far as hiring, not for one specific role, but you'll have a primary role with options to take on more work depending on your skill level? Well, it depends on the size of the company. I mean, bigger companies, you know, those that have 50 to 100 employees or more, I recommend that they put a person in place called the chief revenue officer. And the chief revenue officer is over all activities in the company that create revenue. And in most companies, it'll be marketing, sales, innovation, and customer service. Uh, too often, each of those four areas work in silos. So they, they end up fighting with each other instead of having somebody who's helping them coordinate all their activities. So you really want to coordinate all your, all your revenue-producing activities in a company which is why having interdisciplinary teams is a really important and powerful thing to do. Absolutely. Now, speaking of that, a lot of businesses right now are struggling uh, with churn, with turnover, right, with hiring practices. And I know you went from a 35% success rate in hiring to 85%, which is unbelievable. How did you achieve that? Any advice you can give to the business owners listening? Yeah, we went from hiring from, by our gut to using a hiring system. And our hiring system focused on values, not on non-skill sets. Um, I use skill sets, which we call can-do factors in this hiring system, to be a screen of whether I want to talk to them or not. But once I'm satisfied that somebody can, has the skills to do the job, they go, that goes down to the bottom of the list of importance. What's the most important thing is, do they have shared values with what our company is about? 
And I can't know if they have shared values to identify what the values are and put a clarifying statement around it. For example, one of my core values is rights and respect. And if I say rights and respect to you, you have no idea what I mean until I have a clarifying statement around it. And that clarifying statement essentially would be, uh, for me, is I respect you as an individual and I expect you to respect me as an individual. And I expect you to show respect towards all the people in my company as I will yours. If somebody breaks that rule, they can't work with us. It's that simple. And if somebody doesn't show that, when they come to work for our company, meaning that they respect their coworkers and they treat them with kindness, I don't want them around because they're gonna be jerks to work with. And the one thing you don't want in your company, and every company gets them, is the brilliant jerk. The brilliant jerk is somebody who is really good at what they do, but drives everybody around them, and management spends about 60% or 70% or 80% even of their human resource time dealing with the upset that the brilliant jerk causes. So, and the reason you get brilliant jerks is you hire people with a values mismatch. They don't have the same values and they don't believe in the same values that your company holds dear. But first, your company has to describe what the values are and put clarifying statements around them, which is something most companies never bother doing. That's right. And they struggle with that for sure. They, they kind of come up with it after the fact. Now, the brilliant jerk, do you think it's something where you can harness that energy and, and kind of meld that person, change that person from within, or is it a lost cause in your, in your experience? Rarely. They have to go away. <laughs> okay. So it just doesn't click. No, it's not. Look at it. They could be, you know, like a lot of times you'll find companies that have really, really, really good salespeople who bring in a ton of business but they're just jerks to work with. They are impossible and all they do is cause problems every place they go. Yes, they create a lot of sales, but I would submit that the problems that they create are much, much larger than the sales they bring in. You have a very uh, adamant stance on performance reviews, right? This happens all the time and you believe they're a waste of time. Why do you think that is? Should companies forego it, just get rid of it or should they reform it? Should they change it? They should change it to what I call performance coaching, whereas you, you want to coach people. You don't want to review people. You want people to get better, which means you need to have a system in place where you're meeting with your direct reports on a regular basis, talking about what are the outcomes you expect them to achieve, and are they doing that, and what can you do to help them to become better. I'm a big fan of what I call servant leadership, which is where you turn the um, organizational chart upside down. If you work for me, my job is to make your job easier so you can do it better and be more efficient. So for me to sit there and, and review you is it's fine, I guess, but you're only talking about it once a year. And when we did reviews, I would find that people barely listened to the review and they want to know what the salary adjustment was. So um, I have yet to find a company where performance reviews make people better, but I've seen lots of places where performance coaching makes people significantly better. So it, my job is to mentor and coach you, not to review you. Right. That makes sense. And of course, you can set up a system around that in certain intervals and whatnot make it organized, which I think is very important. Um, it, a lot of it, actually goes, it actually speaks to job descriptions. 
I want people to stop using job descriptions, which I also think are idiotic. Instead, what you want to do is you want to have what are the factors of success in a particular job. So in other words, whether I can use Microsoft Word or not is irrelevant. What is relevant is can I, if I have writing someone, hiring someone to write, can they write and do they write with copy that gets results? Right, and no, absolutely. So that's what I want to, I want to be coaching people. I don't want to be, you know, evaluating whether they can use Microsoft Word right or not. And if they can, so what? And if they can't, then that's learnable. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's certain things you can teach, certain things you can't. I totally agree with that. Now, let's move on to profit. I, you know, you talk about the four types of profit and why they're important. Maybe you can identify for us the four types and why each one of them are important. You know, they're not even types of profit. They're buckets of profit. I mean, profit is one thing. And, and also, profit is a result. It's not a purpose. Profit ha happens when you run your company well, doing the right things. And the four things you need to fill, you need to fill four buckets of profit. One is lifestyle because you have to live and you have to eat and you want to have a roof over your head. And you probably want something that's relatively nice. The second is you need to have an emergency fund. And if you had an emergency fund and COVID happened, you're probably getting through it okay. If you didn't, you may have closed your doors already. Number three is you have to have a fully funded um, growth program, which is not a marketing and not a sales program, but growth. Because when you grow your business, it costs money. You have to hire people before they're, they, they're productive. You have to buy equipment. You have to uh, have receivables. You might even have more inventory. And all those things cost money. So you will need to have a way of funding that fully. And finally, you have to have a fully funded retirement program that will allow you to leave your business on your terms because at the end of the day, unless you're very, in a very small percent of people, you are not selling your business and riding off into the sunset because you're not going to get enough money for it if your business is even saleable. Great. And what do you think the biggest thing that keeps business owners from achieving financial freedom from their businesses? They haven't learned how to delegate. It's the most important skill a business owner needs to learn. It's the hardest one to learn. And it's the one most of them never get around to learning. Yeah, no, I hear you. It's, it's hard to know who in your organization is capable or not. You know, some people from what I've seen, they've delegated to the people that are obviously in the wrong, the wrong fit. A lot of people don't invest into any type of leadership training, mentorship programs, uh, management training. And there's literally no investment in that. So you're hiring people based off their resume. You have no idea if they're able to actually perform. And then, of course, you delegate and they're a middleman between the rank and file and the upper management, the problem is shifted to some, but something it shouldn't be shifted to. You have no idea what it really is. So it's very tough to identify the, you know, the people that are capable. I know, I guess culture fit could be one of those, those uh, factors when evaluating that, but very, very tough to, uh, to identify, especially if you're yes. at the top. That's why you need a business coach to come in there and analyze it and figure it out. Well, you, you know, can figure it out yourself without a business coach. There's plenty of people that do it. But the truth is most businesses are stuck at five to 15 employees and the owner may think they're delegating, but what they really are, they're just instructing people to be helpers. Right. Uh, delegation is something nobody does right out of the box. I've yet to meet somebody who said, I delegated correctly the first time I did it in the second, third and fourth time. It usually takes 15, 20, 25 times of trying before you even become sort of good at it. And you got to be willing to learn from your mistakes because you're going to make them when you start delegating. No, you're absolutely right. You've got to 
have self-awareness for sure. Now, you talk about the importance of asking questions, right? And I believe in that wholeheartedly. Um, it's inquisitiveness. Can you, do you think you can teach this or is it just a natural skill that you can build upon and make it even better than it is at the time? Well, it's a natural skill. I would have never learned it. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, you, you, it's a skill. It's a skill can be learned. I mean, a lot of people talk about leadership. Are leaders made or born? And um, the answer is yes. I mean, some no leader is 100% born a leader. They all have to be made. They all have to learn skills because there's skills for leadership that are necessary. And when you're learning a skill, you don't learn it right the first time. I mean, when you started to ride a bike, did you get on your bike and ride up a steep hill the first time? No, you fell off about 19 times. And you slowly learn what you did wrong, you made, and you corrected those errors, and you go on. One of my favorite philosophical thinkers is a guy named Buckminster Fuller, and he had two things I really like about mistakes. One is you don't learn less, and two, mistakes are learning opportunities. And if that becomes your mantra, you're going to get better at stuff because you're going to go out there and try it and make mistakes. Now, you know, people talk about, I have 20 years of experience. Well, sometimes they do have 20 years of experience, which means they've, they've pushed the boundaries and they made mistakes and learned for 20 years, but it might be the same person that's done the same thing over and over and over and not learned anything because they're scared to make a mistake. Now, a, a quick question for you, Josh. So I have a mentor who says, who goes on record saying that success is 90% balls and 10% brains. Uh, what do you think about that? He's probably right. That leads me into the MBA. You talk about the MBA degree is mostly not useful in a small business. That kind of goes towards the, the balls and the brains thing. Would you want to expand on that? Maybe somebody's the smartest guy in the room is not necessarily the best fit for a business. No, no. I, I love smart people. It's, and I don't blame the people with the MBA. I'm not saying MBA students are the worst things. I said the education is the worst thing. And the reason is it might work for General Motors, although I doubt it. But what MBAs, and this is true with all smart people, is that smart people generally like to take simple things and make them complicated because it's interesting. The truth is, if I want to get something done, I need to take complicated things and make them simple. In an MBA program, most MBA programs will teach their students how to do very, very complicated things that are very expensive. Now, if I work for General Motors or I work for Procter & Gamble, Cash in the bank is not a big deal. They focus on profit. They don't focus on cash. That's true with almost every publicly traded company. So they have the assets to do stuff that's taught in business school. But if I'm working with a company with 30 or 35 people, the one thing is true that I'm always short on is cash. Right. And I need to take very, very complicated things and break it down to very, very simple things, which is not what's taught in the MBA programs. For example, if I'm going to go buy a company and I have an MBA and my staff, they're going to want to use a thing called discounted cash flow to analyze the business that I'm buying. Well, discounted cash flow, first of all, most people don't understand, so they don't even know what, what it means. But the second thing is it's hard to understand and hard to do. Instead, if I take your free cash flow and I put a multiplier on it, and then I say, okay, it's worth three or four times earnings, and how am I going to pay for it? That's the simple way of doing it. I can value a business and be pretty darn close in about 10 minutes. 
Instead, if I want to go and get my business evaluated by fair market value, I'm going to go to a valuation expert who's going to charge me $10,000 and give me a 45 or 50 or 100 page report that justifies that $10,000. But frankly, I can do the thing in the background envelope and I do it all the time. So what would you rather have? Somebody can give you an answer in 10 minutes or somebody that's going to take two months and charge you $10,000. Right. No, absolutely. Now, before we wrap up, I love this. You talk about the best managers and what traits that they have or that you're looking for because, you know, it's very hard to find great managers these days. We've done a lot of podcasts with some great stats. Um, your, your position is the best managers use the Socratic method of management. Now, you may want to explain to the audience what that is and if that's a catch-all, meaning that they should be doing this 100% of the time or it shouldn't be used all the time just in certain situations. Well, the Socratic method of management, basically, when, it, when Socrates taught, he would do so by only asking questions. He would never tell people what the answer was. He would only ask questions. And he would lead people to the answer by asking good questions. If I ask you great questions, you're going to learn how to fish. If I tell you what to do, I'm giving you a fish. And you've probably heard that statement. If you want to eat for your lifetime, learn how to fish. If you want to eat for today, give me a fish. Right. And most people would rather learn for their lifetime. So if you learn how to do something by me asking questions and you making mistakes, you're going to remember that lesson for a very long period of time. But if I tell you what to do, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to forget within about an hour. No, absolutely. Now, do you think it's, it's using it in the right situations? Because obviously, at some point, you have to delegate something specifically. Um, or is it just when there's learning uh, and collaborating, where you're trying to pull out some information or get their critical thinking uh, stimulated? Um, well, the, the problem with, asking, with using a Socratic method is that it takes time. And sometimes I don't have time. I need to get something done now. So I might tell you how to do it if I need it done in the next 15 minutes, or if I only have three and a half minutes to tell you. But if I have 15, 20 minutes, I'm gonna likely sit there and ask you questions and help you figure out how to do it through questions so you actually learn it, so I don't have to tell you again next time it comes around. That's awesome. Now, last question, Josh. Uh, this is gonna help our audience get to know you a little bit better. You're on an island for the rest of your life. You can only bring one movie, one book, and one album. What are they? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not sure I can give you the one book. That's a tough one, right? Very tough. Well, I've read a couple thousand books, so I'm. So, not what about sure. the movie and the album? Um, movie. Well, I can tell you the band would be the Grateful Dead, and I'd well, have to right. think about which which album. Um, that'd be almost impossible for a Grateful Dead fan, right? Well, there are shows you really like. I, I probably the the Cornell show which is a live album, is probably the best one that I've heard. Um, but I wouldn't want to bring one album because I get bored. I really listen to the same album once every three years, much less once a day. Um, and best movie. I don't, know, I don't watch a lot of movies, so it's hard to give an answer for that. You know, I'll Sorry. tell you, I knew a guy who followed The Grateful Dead on tour for an entire year. He said it was the best year of his life. No, they're a great band. I mean, there was a saying back in the uh, 70s, there's nothing like a Grateful Dead concert, and that was right on the money. There was nothing like a Grateful Dead concert. <laughs> so your favorite... A couple thousand live shows in my life. And, oh, wow. Uh, so your favorite ice cream is Cherry Garcia, I take it. 
No, it's actually New York Super Fudge Chunk. Oh, man. I just had a Ben & Jerry's. It was like a cookie dough core. I mean, they, their ice cream is the best I've ever had. I must go on record saying that. Yeah, actually, one of my best friends makes her cookie dough. That's his oh, man. It, it, I, every flavor they have is unbelievably addicting. I just can't get enough of it. It's, it's unreal. I got to slow down in this quarantine. I'm going to end up uh, needing new clothes and new furniture. But, uh, Jai, it's been a pleasure. It's fantastic. Anything you want to leave our audience with, uh, any last words of wisdom, advice, uh, anything before we wrap up? Yeah, have fun. Life is too short. How do we get in touch? How does our audience get in touch with you for your services, for your book, um, or for your, I'm sorry, for your uh, writings, your blogs, and your podcast? Um, well, all that stuff is at www.sustainablebusiness.co. That's... Uh, um, where you, my podcast or videos live there. Uh, my book is at www.sustainablethebook.com. And you can reach me at jpatrick at stage2planning.com. That's the number two, jpatrick at stage2planning.com. And I am pretty much email obsessed, and I tend to get back pretty quickly to people. There you go. That's one of your core values, and I love that, being prompt and uh, respecting others. Josh, a pleasure. Have a wonderful day, wonderful weekend. Uh, it's been a pleasure on my end. Good deal. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for spending time with us today. We encourage you to join the many businesses that we have helped to achieve their objectives, align their departments, and increase their revenue. You can start by reaching out to us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we will make small adjustments that will lead to major impacts to your business, your culture, and your bottom line. 